You're listening to Historically Speaking from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and today I have with me former fraternity president and former fraternity historian Kay Larson and our very special guest, Dr. Mary Osborne, Director of the Stewart House Museum. Good morning, Kylie. Good morning to you, though it's afternoon here in the Eastern Time Zone. Oh, that's right. Good afternoon to you. I'm happy to be back and talking all things history with you. I am too. After working together for so many years, I love that we finally get to do our favorite bits, doing research and answering questions. Isn't that the truth? And today's recording is even better because of our very special guest, Dr. Oz. Hooray for Dr. Oz. Hi, Kay. Hi, Kylie. It's nice to be back with you. Thank you for joining us and for indulging my request for special highlights later in the episode. You're welcome. I think you'll like some of the interesting things I found for you. That sounds great. Well, today's question has been posed a number of different times, and it's one of my favorites. I'm glad that in this instance, we get to both confirm the suspicion while debunking part of the myth. The actual question was, is there a connection between the fraternity, Tiffany and company, and its blue box? Shall we debunk the myth first? Yes, let's. What our listener was asking about is the color of Tiffany and company's signature blue box. That color is one of the most protected colors in branding and is known simply as Tiffany blue. It is also known as Forget-Me-Not Blue and Robin's Blue Egg and is listed as Pantone number 1837, a nod to the year that Tiffany's was founded. Aha, 1837, 33 years before Kappa was founded and before our founders were even born. You're on the right track. On September 18, 1837, Charles Lewis Tiffany and John B. Young opened a stationery and fancy goods emporium on Broadway in New York City. Tiffany and Young made a splash in the fancy goods world by establishing a non-negotiable price for all items sold in the store. During this first year, Tiffany introduced its now famous blue box in which all merchandise purchased from the store was wrapped. That distinctive shade of blue is what we now call Tiffany blue. The store initially sold a wide variety of stationary items and operated as Tiffany, Young, and Ellis in Lower Manhattan. I see that the name was shortened to Tiffany and Company in 1853, when Charles Tiffany took control and the firm's emphasis on jewelry was established. I read online that the distinctive blue color really gained recognition when they first used it on the cover of their blue book, a mail order catalog they began publishing in 1845. 
And then the real turning point for their branding came in 1886 when they introduced their signature diamond engagement ring with a six prong setting. And it came nestled inside of a blue jewelry box. Some will tell you that the box is just as desirable as the jewelry inside. And I'm inclined to agree if only because there's even a charm of the blue box that Tiffany sells. And don't forget, in those mid-1800s, Tiffany's was also known for interior design. The White House Historical Association has posted on their social media pages that in 1882, President Chester Arthur hired Lewis Comfort Tiffany to decorate the Blue Room, East Room, and the Red Room. If you Google pictures of it, he did a sort of ombre of what we know to be Tiffany Blue in the Blue Room, which sadly was later covered in wallpaper. That's amazing. I wonder if it's still under the wallpaper. Hard to say, but it might. Okay, back to you, Kay. Even though there was no Kappa influence on the Tiffany blue color, Kappas may have influenced Tiffany and Company in its earlier years. Two granddaughters of founder Charles Lewis Tiffany, Louise Comfort Tiffany and Julia DeForest Tiffany, were members of Beta Epsilon chapter at Barnard College in New York City. Both were initiated as freshmen on April 21st, 1906. The May 1907 issue of the Key reported that Julian DeForest Tiffany is spending the spring in Italy and France. According to the Key of October 1907, Julia was the fall 1907 ten tennis champion at Barnard. In April 1909, the initiation of the sophomore pledge class was held at the Tiffany sisters' home. By that time, Barnard didn't allow women to go through recruitment until they were sophomores. Because of the sophomore rule, this was the chapter's first big initiation in two years and the members eagerly anticipated the event. All right, wake up, Dr. Oz. This is the part that I invited you on for. You are the queen of highlighting some of the most interesting things from your research in Kappa history. And I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about Beta Epsilon chapter at Barnard. The Tiffany twins weren't the only famous women to come from that chapter. So what was it about Beta Epsilon chapter? Right. Well, first I'll give you a little background about the chapter itself. Beta Epsilon was established at Barnard College in 1891. Barnard was the sister school of Columbia University and founded in 1889. Beta Epsilon closed in 1917. Building camaraderie within the chapter may have been difficult because students didn't live on campus and were spread out all over New York City. In fact, Beta Epsilon pointed out these difficulties in the 1894 October issue of The Key. However, the chapter produced many notable Kappas, including educator and human rights activist, Virginia Gildersleeve, suffragist and educator, Jessica Gerritsen Finch Cosgrave, and author, Alice Dewar Miller. Today, Miller is best remembered for her verse play, The White Cliffs, which was the basis for Clarence Brown's 1942 film, The White Cliffs of Dover, starring Irene Dunn, Van Johnson, and Peter Lawford. Alice's great-grandfather, William Alexander Dewar, was the president of Columbia College. However, a banking failure diminished her family's finances. 
Alice turned to writing stories and essays and submitting them to magazines, such as Harper's and Scribner's, to cover her tuition. Though her parents could not finance her education, Alice was able to work her way through school, something that's very difficult today. Later, she became a member of Heterodoxy, a group of feminists, free thinkers, and professional women based in Greenwich Village. She also volunteered with the Collegiate Equal Franchise Society, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, and the Congressional Union until 1917. The number of famous Barnard alumni was probably due to a combination of the college's location in New York City, where more resources and opportunities were available than at other women's colleges. And students also arrived with considerable social capital because of their parents' backgrounds. Take, for example, Marjorie Jacoby, the daughter of Dr. Mary Putnam Jacoby, the first woman to study medicine at the University of Paris, and the first woman to become a member of the Academy of Medicine. Dr. Jacoby also mentored Emily Dunning Barringer, the first woman ambulance surgeon, and a Kappa from Cornell. Schools such as Barnard attracted ambitious women of high caliber who were poised to take advantage of all a college education could offer. On the other hand, their fame was not solely due to Barnard's preparation, according to some alumni. Jessica Gerritsen Finch Cosgrave is on record as stating her education at Barnard, quote, had not given her or her classmates the skills needed to earn a living. That is super interesting. Thank you, Dr. Oz. But there is one name that you left off the Beta Epsilon roll call. Oh, who's that? Well, I'm not sure she could be considered famous, but she's one of my favorite surprises that we've turned up while researching other things. Juliet Stewart Points was a Beta Epsilon member and also a founding member of the Communist Party of the United States and an intelligence agent for the Soviet Union. However, she resigned from the party because of Joseph Stalin's Great Purge and her unexplained disappearance in New York City in 1937 is thought to be an assassination because of her resignation from the Communist Party. Wow, you're correct. She didn't float to the top of the list of notable Kappas from Beta Epsilon in my research. But it is interesting to note the wide variety of thoughts and opinions one finds in any chapter and on any campus. Well, my goodness. You two sure do turn up the most interesting historical facts. And you've reminded us about why one of our grand old chapters was so grand. Thank you. You're welcome. As I told Kylie, you both usually let me talk about Ada Mariner Stewart and Dr. Mary Crawford all the time. So I think I owe you one. <laughs> well, and besides the Tiffany sisters who were members of Beta Epsilon chapter, there's another Tiffany connection. In 1945, two Kappas made Tiffany history. Marjorie Jacobson, Hart, and her best friend, Marty Garrett Jackson, both from Beta Zeta chapter at the University of Iowa, went to New York City to find summer jobs. They weren't hired at Lord and Taylor where three of their Kappa sisters were working for the summer. But miraculously, they found jobs as pages at Tiffany and Company. They became the first women ever to work on the sales floor. And Marjorie described it as a diamond filled day job replant with Tiffany blue shirtwaist dresses from Bonwit Tellers. And they were the envy of all their friends. 
I remember when Marjorie published her 2012 book, Summer at Tiffany, and it was featured in The Key. She tells of the wonderful experiences of their summer in New York, rubbing elbows with the rich and famous, pinching pennies to eat at the automat, experiencing the nightlife, and dancing their weekends away with dashing servicemen. They were dazzled by Judy Garland's honeymoon visit to Tiffany. They celebrated VJ Day or Victory in Japan Day in Times Square at the end of World War II, and they mingled with cafe society. Marjorie spoke to our Desert Alumni Association and we all enjoyed meeting her so much. Several of our members had known her when they were all in the chapter together at Iowa. So it was special for them too. Summer at Tiffany is perfect summer reading. It's a great beach book that I know our listeners would enjoy. So check it out. And if you're in the market for your own little blue box, perhaps you'll find a nice key from Tiffany Collection. I have one that was given to me by our Kappa sister, Julie Mangus, and it's still one of my favorite pieces of jewelry. And were you just as excited by the box it came in? <laughs> Good question, Mary. You know, I probably was. Well, thanks to you both for helping me answer this question. Happy to help. You're welcome. And listeners, if you have a question you'd like us to answer for you, you can send it to archives at kkg.org. Have a great summer, everyone. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Historically Speaking, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Many thanks to our special guest and director of the Stewart House Museum, Dr. Mary Osborne from the Alpha Deuteron chapter at Monmouth College. Initial research was done by former fraternity president and former fraternity historian, Kay Smith Larson from the Beta Pi chapter at the University of Washington. And production is done by me, Kylie Smith from the Omicron Deuteron chapter at Simpson College and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.